You're listening to The Cultured Podcast, a weekly conversation hosted by me, Michelle Corey, that breaks down the barriers surrounding art, theater, travel, and more to serve a digestible dose of culture for all. So excited to welcome you back for another tasty episode of the Cultured Podcast. And it's about to get lit because we have a lighting designer on the show. Do you see what I did there? Connor McVeigh is with us today. He is a lighting designer, a set designer, and get this, a draftsman. And we're going to find out just what that means. But it's pretty friggin' cool. Before we get into that, though, before we talk to Connor, let's explore what's inspiring me this week. And this week, my beloved culture crew, you are inspiring me. I feel really privileged and honored to have met a lot of listeners at this point, and it inspires me all the different episodes, the different takeaways that you come away with from listening to the Cultured Podcast. Some of you are super inspired by episode two with Brandon Sadler. Some of you dive into the methods of acting in episode six. And a lot of you are just in love with Amber Nash from one of the most recent episodes. I'm sorry, I can't memorize all the episode numbers. (laughs) I really appreciate you listening. It makes my soul happy to do this. And it's absolutely stunning to be able to hear that listeners are taking away just as much as I take away from every episode. So thank you from the bottom of my heart. I have everlasting gratitude for you guys and your ears, your curiosity, and uh, your culture. Duh. All right, let's get into it. Without further ado, we're talking to Connor. Hey, Connor. Hey, how's it going? (laughs) Good. How about you? I'm well, thanks. You're so chill. Yeah. So you are a lighting designer, Mm -hmm. which I find fascinating because it's one of those aspects of theater that people rarely uh, are conscious of, unless you're like really in the theater game and then you kind of dissect every part of a live show. Mm -hmm. But it's one of the things that I think has the most impact on a show. It can really alter the way that you perceive the action on stage. So tell me a little bit about how you got into lighting design. Yeah, well, first of all, if you're not conscious of it, then we're doing something right. <laughs> right, you know? exactly. Uh, when the review comes out and we're not mentioned, most of us go, great, we didn't screw up noticeably. You know, woohoo. Uh, <laughs> I uh, <clears throat> I got into it uh, the first time I was an undergrad at Birmingham Southern in Alabama, and I was the assistant lighting designer for a show. I was working with the resident Uh, lighting designer who was also designing the set and eventually he just focused more on the set design and I focused more on the lighting design and on top of that I was working at a theater in Birmingham terrific new theater that I was acting at since I was like 16 and so I was hanging lights there and designing sets and designing lights outside of class, much to my professor's uh, chagrin. Mm-hmm. And then I did, you know, larger shows in college. And I just, I really, I just fell in love with it. It was a lot more difficult than acting. It was a lot more challenging. And I enjoyed speaking to the script in a larger way than wow. an actor might. Mm-hmm. You, you have a more holistic relationship with the text than an actor sometimes does relating to one part. And, you know, acting is, is still fun and engaging and wonderful. And then last time I was on stage, it was only a couple of years ago. And, 
you know, I still enjoyed it. When I, when I moved to Atlanta, I was part of an improv troupe here. Like, I'm not saying that I don't, you know, I, I still really enjoy it. But design is, is more engaging for me. So eventually I dropped out of school and I became the resident designer at TNT in Birmingham. And I was designing uh, about seven sets and lights for seven shows a year. And it was just it was just a lot of fun. And mm-hmm. that's, you know, that that's what I wanted to do. The, the most the most fun and the most difficult was when I would design the set and design the lights, and then I would also be in the show that I was designing. So I would have to trust uh, the director, my buddy Carl, to give me notes because I was not out in the house watching the lighting design, right? Wow. So he would say, okay, this, this scene is great. This needs to be brighter, and also, like, learn your lines. And then, you know, I'd do my lighting notes and then come in for rehearsal. That's not the way most of the world does it. Right. You know, in fact... Uh, People who design sets and lights together in the freelance market are becoming, uh, in my, uh, from what I've seen, a lot less common. You know, Why pe- do you think that is? Uh, I think people like to spread the names around. They like to get as many people in as possible because, rightly or wrongly, there's a perception that if this person designs this show and this person designs the next one, they will look identical because a certain person has a certain style. And... It's my opinion that those of us that are proficient and working often and are good uh, probably lack an individual style. You know, mm. we're, we're probably the, the really great designers are trying to be loyal to the script rather than to themselves. So sure. Hello, Dolly, designed by the same designer as is doing the Crucible. Those two shows are going to look different. One would hope. right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you're not you're not going to do the pajama game like you do Angels in America. You know, I don't care who you are. You're not going to light them the same way. Uh, and and conversely, you know, if you have someone who turns in a really great set design and they do a really good job for you and you really enjoy working with them. It makes total sense to me as a producer to bring them back to design another set instead of giving a set design to the lighting designer that says he also does sets, Mm -hmm. you know, or the uh, or the painter who is a really great painter. You want to bring them back as a painter and they say, oh, I also do props. Well, you've also got a props person. Mm -hmm. You know, you also have a properties designer that you really trust and you want to bring them back. So that makes sense to me. Uh, I I just enjoy doing both Mm -hmm. because I think that there is a. There's a a way that you can connect the lighting and the properties and the set together in your mind with the director that some other a group of individuals may do it differently. I could have put that better, I'm sure, but I think that... (laughs) No, I get it. And I mean, I think about it in terms of if you're a really good actor, you're not playing the same character over and over and over again. Uh, You see one-note actors, right? But really good ones can play a wide range of characters, just as a really good lighting designer can light a wide range of circumstances. Yeah, for sure. And I, I think a lot of us have our... We have our individual bag of tricks and we have things that we prefer to do. You know, I will do I will do Oklahoma and Damn Yankees and Pajama Game and I will do all of these, you know, old fun musicals all year round if I could. I love them. They're <laughs> Why? great. It's a real because it's a really good time because I um I think that theater for social change is great. I think that plays with a powerful message are uh, are fantastic, but I uh 
I also think there's a reason that Mel Brooks, the producers, was really popular when it was. I think there's a reason uh, Avenue Q was really popular when it was. And sometimes you need to go to the theater to have a really good time. Mm-hmm. So when I was in high school, I did this uh, this extended clowning workshop with Steve Smith, who's the former dean of Ringling Brothers Clown College. Oh, my God. And then, yeah, yeah, he's great. And then I think, if I remember right, he went on to teach at DePaul University in uh, Chicago. So it was like a month-long intensive, I think. And That's he, really cool. It, it was really cool. And uh, we did the noses and the face paint and everything. <laughs> um, and you put you put this powder in a sock, and you use the sock to put. That's how you get that thick powder on your face. That's how it cakes on really well. Is in a sock that you've knotted up. Oh my god! And because a sock is the only thing that can contain that much powder that you anyway. <laughs> so he he talked about performing and live theater in general as throwing a lasso of joy around the audience and then using that to bring them into the world. Mm. And even if it is a tragic performance, if it, if it is drama, then the catharsis that comes out the other end of it is the joy with which you are bringing them into the world. Mm. The joy is on the back end instead of the front. But either way, the idea is to give someone a rewarding and good time. So for me, you know, I, I don't, uh, I, I appreciate the dramatic and poetic arcs of Star Wars, but for me, it's also still laser swords and, you know, pew, pew, pew. It's a <laughs> lot of fun, right? So for me, working on these shows that are big, bright, happy, you know, uh, fantastic musicals, you can really lift someone's day. And I laugh at myself in undergrad and high school because it's like, yeah, we're going to do Samuel Beckett. We're, we're going to do, you know, the only serious theater is Titus Andronicus, and that's it, <laughs> you know, because I was an idealistic little punk. <laughs> and uh, now it's like I will, I will do Shrek the musical as many times as I can because the arrangements at the end of Act One are fantastic, and it's Shrek, and it's great. This is so cool. I just – there's just so many – there's so much to dig into here because also – the way that you light up, the way you get excited about lighting a performance, it kind of reminds you that a world comes to life on stage that a lot of it has to do with the lights. Mm-hmm. Even the way that you walk into a restaurant and if it's too bright, it kills your vibe. <laughs> so imagine. So I want to know, first oh, of all. Oh, yeah. Go, go to this sushi place called Eight, by the way. Whoever designed Eight it. Eight Sushi? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Have you been there? I've been there. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> like, whoever designed that restaurant from the floor up. Well, the dishes are lit up. I know. <laughs> like, who, whoever did that place needs a Tony and they'll never get one. <laughs> but we digress. I want to get back to the fact that your roots are in theater, but it wasn't like total happenstance that you started working lighting design because you were actually working as an electrical engineer, right? Uh, not as or doing electrical work. No, working as an electrician. Yeah, because I was um, I was fortunate enough to have teachers in high school that kind of pushed uh, myself and my cousin, who's also in lighting. Uh, his name's Aaron. He does these big EDM festivals, and then he was on tour with WWE for a while. Um, he's Tiesto's lighting guy. Uh, he's based out of California, so he's also a lighting designer, and he does the the big like big like 
massive EDM live performance. Well, and stuff. EDM performances are all about lighting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's a that's really a you know back and forth dialogue between the music and the lighting designer who is reacting in the moment and doing the stuff live in the moment. Yeah, they um we call it busking. That's when they may have the set list and they may not, and they've got pre-programmed looks and compositions that they can go to. They have stuff that they have spent time and thought composing, but they are actively at the lighting desk recalling these things live. Whereas what we do is we set up compositions and record them into the lighting computer where an operator can later press the go button and then that composition can be recalled. Uh, so in high school, our, our teacher because we were going to school together, eventually said, hey, you guys are doing good work. Um, we, we've taught you a lot, but you need some more experience, so we're kind of pushing you out of the nest, and we're going to set up this internship with a, a couple companies in town. And so it was. Uh, I was working as a like an ASM and a follow-spot operator with one theater while I was also doing my uh, other thing at TNT. What's uh, an ASM and a follow spot operator? So ASM is an assistant stage manager, and depending on how the company is structured, the ASM's uh, duties are variable. Uh, and a lot of theater job titles will call to mind episodes of The Office where there's a discernible difference between uh, an assistant to the designer <laughs> and an assistant designer, and then there are also associate designers. So an assistant stage manager usually helps the stage manager accomplish their tasks for the pre-production and the production period. For me, it meant... Uh, getting a bunch of kids on stage for the Christmas cabaret, making sure all of the pre-show checklist was done, uh, bringing uh, the stage manager a uh, goldfish and a Coke when she wanted one. And I still work with her. Uh, I, she she stage managed the last show I did in Birmingham. She's great. Um, and we're going to be talking to your wife, Emma, in a future episode yeah, about stage exactly. management because she's a stage manager. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying, you know, I'm, I'm trying not to bury the lead too much, but I'm also like, I'm trying not to, you know, completely do her podcast for her um <laughs> yeah we're gonna move on <laughs> but and then the the follow spot operator the the other part of the job is a, a person who is usually front of house uh behind the audience uh why behind the audience is called front of house don't i won't get into it. but the uh this so this is a movable light unit that can focus on a particular actor uh, or part of the stage the spotlight exactly and is operated by a real person who's listening to information from the stage manager as to when to execute their cues. So let me ask you, what does your process look like when you're mm -hmm. about to work on a new show? Walk us through the entire process of coming up with that composition, that lighting composition. Is that what you call it? Uh, yeah. So the, the overall the movement throughout the show will be several different compositions usually because some scenes need to look different from others mm -hmm. unless it's 90 minutes in one environment and it's all in real time and the lighting doesn't change that often uh, so my process is i read the script a lot and i try to figure out what the playwright needs in order for their work to be best represented mm -hmm. and then i wait on the set design and then i try to figure out what the set design needs in order for it to be best represented. And usually the set designer will have some ideas on how they think their work might be best lit. 
you're you're really lucky when you get a designer who has thought about that or sometimes they have put lighting fixtures on their set you know there's a lamp here there's a chandelier here and that gives you something to to work off of Mm -hmm. and then i wait on the costume design and then i try to figure out how the the costume design needs to be best rep and there's a theme here right because i'm i'm i think that if you go out of your way to make everybody else look fabulous you look like the best lighting designer in the world. I don't know if I'm right about that, but it works it for me. It sounds right. You know, and I I really try not to have any specific ideas very early on. I, I try to listen to the script empathetically. I try to listen to the director empathetically. And then I try to make everybody else's work look good. If I have the opportunity to do a lot of fun stuff on the back end that is really punchy and muscular and fabulous and looks really great, that's awesome. But if you don't notice me and everybody else looks fabulous, number one, I still get paid. That's great. And number two, the show is fantastic, and the audience has the ability to take the play for what it is instead of the play in the context of a lighting design that bothered them. Right. You know? And a a lot of it is... A lot of it is collaboration that is slightly tilted in the direction of the other people I'm working with. It is collaborative, but I would rather I would rather lose any given fight because it it's a supportive craft. You do not show up to a theater with however many ideas you've got and then make everyone deal with them. You show up with ideas that make everybody else life easier right. that are under budget and under labor budget, right? Because Let's say you have, okay, this play's going to look fantastic if we hang all these 300 lights and they've provided two electricians. They're not the dummy. You are. Mm. They told you they were providing two electricians. Don't hang a plot for Cirque du Soleil. Right. You know? Um, Oh, that's a whole nother layer. Yeah, yeah. So, So my, and so that's the framework of of my process it sounds like it's it's you're almost the one of the last steps of the show because i imagine blocking also plays a part well plays a huge part although the lighting plot the the set of documents that are required for electricians to hang your design is usually due before you've seen rehearsals right uh, or, or at least it is commonly due before you've seen rehearsals in the, the freelance and collegiate markets that, that I work in. Um, so you try to set yourself up with a, a big palette of tools. And then when you watch rehearsal and you, you can light them where they stand, but you have these, let's say you have your interior warm amber theme and you have the blue light coming through the window and then maybe you have some kind of texture coming through leaves for the outside scene. Well, you have to have that everywhere, usually, because maybe they're playing this scene down right and then it moves down left and you have to be able to follow them and direct the focus of the audience in a particular way. That part of the gig you don't really understand until you've watched rehearsal, unless you're fortunate enough to have time with the director and they say, I know that this scene, you know, this one scene that takes place inside this hotel room 
at night is only going to play downstage right. So whatever mm-hmm. you're doing for that scene, it only has to be 12 feet by 12 feet wide. So you can have gear just for that scene, and then you don't need it anywhere else. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and, and I had one of those recently. A, a director and I spent a few hours. We went moment by moment comparing what he was looking for and the ideas I had, and you know, a lot of it, a lot of it linked up, and the the rest of it that didn't link up, I just did what he wanted, you know, and, and it worked out great. So you really, I think you have a sense of humility and you release your ego with this whole thing because even just calling it a supportive craft allows you to see it in a way that's like, I'm here to make everyone look good, like you said. That makes your life easier as much as it makes other people's lives easier. You know, like as a writer, to if I'm writing for somebody else's vision not marrying myself to my words allows my job to feel easier because when they want to change, that's cool, man. Like that's your vision, you know? Well, yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's killing your darlings, right? (laughs) You know, and I, you know, have your ego at the bar, right? (laughs) Have your ego at home. Don't be the person in the room that is slowing down the entire process. And nobody is going to wholeheartedly love every single idea that you have and if they don't, that's fine. Your idea may not match up with what they're trying to do with the show. And they're the director and you're not, mm-hmm. right? And and all you can do, if you honestly believe that your idea is better than theirs, you, you make a case for it, you advocate for it, but you do that when you're trying to advise them towards the proper path. You know, we, we are professionals and we are we are knowledgeable we are experienced you know it's like you you hire a lighting designer because of their expert knowledge on lighting but then you have the prerogative to tell them that's fine i just don't want to do that you know uh that's different from hiring a plumber who tells you that you need a a new uh u-joint on your water heater you know you don't turn to the plumber and say okay that's fine i appreciate it but i'm not gonna (laughs) you know right you still defer to the client and you defer to the director because mm-hmm. they're the director and you're not. Yeah. Uh, but you still have the prerogative to discuss it with them. You know, sure. you should still advocate for your work. But and usually when you have those discussions, you're trying to understand what they're going for. You know, sometimes they they might say, I never really thought that song was going to be blue and yellow. I thought it was going to be red and pink. You know, and and that's a very specific color note, but it it's it's not productive to say I, I don't care. I want it to be blue and yellow. It is productive to say what are you going for with red and pink? Mm-hmm. What are you trying to accomplish? What is the what is the actionable objective of what you're trying to do? You know, what is this moment supposed to do to the audience? And when they explain it, you go, okay, that's what you're going for. Uh, Blue and yellow doesn't work. I liked blue and yellow because the bass line sounded blue and yellow to me. Let me change it. Mm -hmm. You know, right? So is, yeah, as long as you're, it's like playing bridge. You follow your partner's lead or you drop dead, you know, (laughs) and, and that's the, that's the gig, you know? So what tools do you use to actually plot out the lighting design that you hand in? Like, do you do this on the computer? Yeah, yeah. So it's... What does that look like? It, it's all computer-aided. It, it's, it, starts with the, it starts with the script, and that's either a PDF or it's on paper. And then you're, you're making notes, and you're, you're making checklists of what each moment of the play needs. 
you know, what it needs to look like. Are there, are there actual light fixtures or is this all exterior or, you know, we, we talk about the, the given circumstances of the play, the, the setting, the time in history and the time of day. Um, and the environment that the characters are in, what the characters are themselves. Are they wealthy? Are they not? You know, is it a satirical play? Uh, is it uh, very genuine and earnest and naturalistic? Uh, so that when you, when you figure out what you have to do, that's when you go to the computer and start generating the actual light plot. So there's various uh, different CAD platforms. Uh, I use one called Vectorworks myself. It's kind of the industry standard, and it's also used by uh, landscape architects and mechanical engineers. Uh, Vectorworks has gone out of its way to make specific tools for our us lighting designers. Wow. You know, like if there's, you know, you're in a theater, and uh, you're, say you're lighting your stage with a bunch of uh, Fresnels. Um, which is a pretty common uh, fixture. Uh, Vectorworks knows what a Fresnel is, and when you put it on your paperwork, it will count how many of those Fresnels are in your paperwork, and it will tell your electricians how many they need to get and put up. There are various other programs we use, but that's the main one. And then there's there's Lightrite, which is just keeping track of your paperwork while you're also working in Vectorworks. So these two are running together on two monitors. And uh, the lighting design is really only as strong as the paperwork. If your electricians cannot understand what you need in the room, your design is not going to happen. Mm-hmm. So while, while you need them to implement your work, they need you desperately to do your job well. Otherwise, they can't do theirs. I like to say... There's one job in theater that is not a position of service, and that's playwriting, you know? Mm -hmm. So, like, if you're a designer, your name is near the front of the program, but you are doing it in service to the electricians because they have to do their job, Mm -hmm. you know? So all of this technology helps us do that. So you actually model the light plot you plot out the lights <laughs> yeah yeah so what you get from the the scenic designer you get a ground plan which is the central set design document and that's got a uh, a two-dimensional drawing of the theater itself and then it's got their uh their plan view their bird's eye view the ground plan of the set and then when you're lucky you'll get a center line section which is cutting the theater and the the set design in half down the middle so that you can see how tall things are mm. because you've got to shoot over walls right and you're you're lighting in a three-dimensional space and then so we take those and then we put whatever the lighting positions in the theater are whether it's movable pipes or it's a system of catwalks or maybe it's a what we call a tv grid it's a grid of pipes that are above the um above the theater if you've been to actors express here in atlanta the best tv grid in the world it's like it's almost all exactly on center they've got all these dimmers around the room and all this cable that you can throw anywhere um like it's just the the way uh they had a guy that worked there for years and he was intentional on making it like really functional for life so we put anyway i'm digressing he's a great guy anyway yeah but i just love hearing like the things that make us all tick that are so different and just like throwing wires everywhere uh, a (laughs) A theater that makes sense and is easy to do work in makes me tick. 
like it's really really great because I work in a lot of different theaters and they all have their own you know right, so we've quirks. got the yeah so we layer the lighting positions on top of the scenic design and then there's a, a bunch of you know basic algebra and basic trigonometry to figure out when when the beam of light comes out of the instrument at a distance of 27 feet, for instance, to the actor, the beam of light is going to be X number of feet wide. How many of these particular instruments do I need to get all the way across the stage from right to left? And then you figure out, okay, because these, these lights are coming at a diagonal, right? So eventually, if, the, you know, if you're lighting the stage, eventually someone is going to walk out of that light as they move upstage. So now you need another row of five or however many lights upstage. And then mm-hmm. you multiply that. And then that's the front light. We also have side lighting. And then we have it from the other side, too. And then you have lighting behind the actor to break them out from the set. And that's when that, you know, that center line section from the designer comes in from the scenic designer comes into play because you have to dodge the set in order to get to the actors and you're trying to get all the way around them because we are round, mm-hmm. you know, that the, these, uh, these ballet dancers, I mean, ballet designers in the sixties and seventies did us a lot of favors because they started putting lights on metal pipes on the side of the stage because people are moving in space and there are a lot of vertical surfaces and people around it. We need to get all around them. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, so that's that's the process. It's it's serving the the script and what it needs and also just making sure that the people and the objects on stage are accurately and creatively rendered. Wow. This is so fascinating. I just I need to see one of these like drafts that, that you've made. Sure. I mean I can get my you know, my we Google Drive post. out. You know what we need to do? We need sure. to post one of these if you're comfortable with it no, that's in the fine. show notes for this episode. Yeah. Because I feel like a visual representation of what you're talking about is gonna be mind blowing well, for a lot of people. I mean probably you know, I don't know I I don't want to go so far as to say it's gonna be mind blowing because it's you know that but you're so desensitized to well, it. Well, no, it's not that. It's just, I'm, you know, I, I'll admit that I own a horn, but I don't want to blow my own, you know. <laughs> um, it's just, but it, it can be, it, it, it can be a, a lot to take in because the, the lighting plot is anywhere from one to sometimes seven pages that are three by four feet large, depending on how many how many drawings you need to do for the electricians to generate it. And that's They're like the, blueprints. They, they are, yeah. And that's... You know, that's the light plot itself. And then you also have additional paperwork that comes along with it, which is spreadsheets that are notating what every light does and what color goes in it and, you know, where it gets plugged in in the theater and the how the computer controls it. And then there's also focus charts sometimes of like where this light gets focused and how you cut it around the set. And that's another separate set of drawings. Wow. Um, and so... Did this doing these drawings lead to your passion drafting? Well, yeah, I mean that's kind of that, that's been my side hustle for a while because it was this is this is what I'm this is something that I'm required to do for what I do every day. And as a freelancer that's, you know, I I don't I don't have a day job. So a lot of it is on the phone with your friends like what do you have next week? And sometimes what they have is, I, can you crank out some drawings for me? You know, I've got, here's my light plot. I'm 75% of the way done. I need this done. And if you know their design sensitivities and you know how they like their things drawn, 
you can kind of play covers of their design songs and draft for them. <laughs> or um, a while back, me and a buddy worked for a corporate uh, shop here in town where we did a site survey of the aquarium parking deck, and then we generated, we did the blueprints of the aquarium parking deck for a company that was going to come in and redo their striping and redo their signage. So you wouldn't expect that the people in the aquarium parking deck with the hard hats and the vests and the lasers are theatrical people. <laughs> you know, they're not, const- but that's, you know, we do that as well. So now you have an Etsy shop. So that was uh, me and uh, me and some of my college buddies play this video game called Destiny. And for Christmas, I uh, I got into Vectorworks and I drew their, you know, favorite weapons from the game. It's this like online space fantasy shooter, fantasy shooter thing. And so I got their favorite guns and I did them like an annotated schematic drawing of yeah. their favorite things from the uh, from the video game. And it was like, you know, this is, you know, uh, textured marksman's grip. This is ported barrel. You know, like you'd get a blueprint from the manufacturer yeah. that doesn't exist. <laughs> and uh, Emma and everybody else was like, hey, you need to sell these. Like, these are actually, and I'm like, I don't, you know. So I, I don't understand Etsy really at all. But <laughs> Emma took my stuff and she made an Etsy shop. And then she spent about three months explaining to me how it works. <laughs> And and so now yeah so now I'm doing uh, lightsabers and there's a Han Solo's blaster on there and it's a, you know I've made a little bit of money out of it but mostly it's like it's a it's another creative outlet for me and it's something to do in my spare time and it keeps my skills sharp you know I have learned new things about VectorWorks that I probably I probably would have not learned a third way to draw a Bezier curve or an arc tangent to an arc if I didn't need to do this particular thing on uh, a rifle from Mass Effect, the video <laughs> game, you know? Right. But, and it also, it's, it's a way for me to appreciate what these other designers are doing because there's a lot of work that goes into these props for video games that don't even exist Mm -hmm. you know i and it's like mad respect to the cosplay community who are actually making these things seriously i'm just drawing them it is so intricate well that is fascinating i i feel like you've opened up a whole new world to theater you know and i've been a part of theater since i was younger but Mm -hmm. i never dealt with lighting designers ever because i did it when i was so young you know i got out of it right before i hit college and so to me this is such a new level of creativity and of bringing a story to life non-verbally and without an actual physical without something that's physically tangible you know i'm reading this book about quantum physics so it's just like blowing my mind because you're just kind of like throwing photons out <laughs> which book uh the elegant universe by oh, brian yeah. green yeah, yeah, yeah so good yeah, yeah. it's taking me forever to get through yeah. though um thank you so much connor oh, this course. was so interesting i really appreciate you coming on the show and sharing your perspective no doubt yeah this was fun thanks lord ha mercy i feel like every conversation i have on this show i just 
realize that there's so much more to learn and there's so many worlds within our one world that are so fascinating and rich with culture, rich with creativity. Connor had a phenomenally interesting perspective and I would love to hear if something struck a nerve with you. So definitely give me a shout on all the socials, Cultured Podcast, except for Twitter, Cultured Pod, because uh, I'd love to hear what you think and if you already knew this stuff about lighting design, because I certainly didn't. And if you want to learn more about what Connor does and the lighting magic that he does for different live shows, you can go to VectorCat.com. That's both with K's, Vector with a K, Cat with a K, dot com. And if you want to see some of those drawings that he talked about, those really cool schematics he does of different weapons from these video games and movies, you can go to vectorcat.etsy.com. And Curveball, he's also on a podcast. So if you want to hear him talk with his buddies about Civilization VI, you can look up Civcast on iTunes and a bunch of other podcatchers. And until next time, keep it classy, keep it curious, keep it cultured. I'm Michelle Corin. Sean Powers is our producer. David Markowitz is our executive producer. The Cultured Podcast is a production of Zero Mile Media, made with love in Atlanta. You can listen to The Cultured Podcast at culturedpodcast.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Google Play, Stitcher, and anywhere else podcasts are found. 